From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Recent breakthroughs in science and medicine have demonstrated that we may be much closer to being able to artificially grow and replace human organs than ever before. But those developments are also challenging long-established ethical guidelines around the use of embryos or embryo-like cells. Today, science writer and contributor to The Monthly, Elizabeth Finkel, on the latest scientific breakthroughs and the argument that our ethics need to evolve alongside our knowledge of the world. Elizabeth, you're a former biochemist and you've written extensively about stem cell research and about embryo science. If you were to begin explaining the importance of those fields to me, where would you begin? So I think most people have heard of stem cells, embryonic stem cells. They're like this magic putty that you can mould into any kind of body tissue. So many, many of the diseases we suffer as human beings, are because body tissues fail. So when a child has uh, early-onset diabetes, it's because the cells of that child's pancreas have died off and that child is now dependent on insulin injections for life and, you know, they don't control their blood sugar perfectly, which is what insulin does, and they end up with various vascular diseases, diseases of the heart and the eyes because of that inability to perfectly control their blood sugar. So in 1998, researchers made a breakthrough and that was they learned how to make human embryonic stem cells. And why was that so significant, Elizabeth? What could you do with human embryonic stem cells? So as I say, these are a kind of magic putty. They These are the cells that the embryo instructs to form every tissue of the body. Well, if we have these cells now in the lab, we can learn to instruct them to make exactly what we want. For instance, pancreatic cells to to treat a child with diabetes so that instead of having to inject themselves with insulin, we give them this artificial pancreas and and away they go. And and 20 years later, it's it's almost there. So... The science has come a long way then in the last few decades, especially so, though, I would say in the last few years and in the last couple of months, we've actually seen a whole lot of headlines around this. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I myself thought, am I seeing this in headlines or is this the latest Netflix sci-fi lineup? So we've had growing human embryos from skin cells. Well, in a major scientific breakthrough, researchers have developed a technique to potentially create models of human embryos from skin cells. We've had human monkey embryos. Serious ethical issues are being raised after it emerged that US and Chinese scientists have implanted human cells into monkey embryos. The aim of the research... We've had fetuses gestated in incubators. For the first time, scientists have grown mouse embryos and it's inside artificial wounds. It just throws up all the tropes. Island of Dr Moreau, um, Brave New World and the the London hatchery for growing human embryos. My name is Jose Polo. I'm the head of the Polo Group and my lab works on understanding how cells become other cells and what makes a cell that cell. 
Jose Polo has been working with stem cells. He actually generates his stem cells starting from reprogrammed skin cells. And he almost inadvertently has ended up making structures that look like human embryos. They look like human blastocysts, these embryos that are at the same stage just before you implant them in a human womb. An iBlastoid is a model of the human early embryo, also known as blastocyst, that we generated in the lab using human skin cells. And it will allow us to study the early steps of human development. So he published a paper on them in March showing that they, in many important respects, carry all the same structures that a normal human embryo does. And that's important because he wants to use them as models to study this uh, very mysterious period of human development when the embryo is forming its body plan. So Jose Polo, once he saw that these embryos he'd created looked like real embryos, started to worry, and he sends off a letter or an email to the National Health and Medical Research Council and says, look, I've created these things that look and smell like embryos, you know, what, what do you think? And they said, you must stop working on them. You need to get a license like anybody else who wants to work with human embryos. So according to our agency, the National Health and Medical Research Council, Jose Polo's embryoids are captured by embryo legislation and he's no longer allowed to work on them. Okay, so we have this Australian researcher who has made what sounds like a fairly significant scientific breakthrough, but he can't pursue it, and that's because his his work is being restrained by the government. That's correct. So that's where we get to the pointy end here. You know, uh, Australia's laws at the moment are preventing Jose Polo from continuing his research on these blastoids. They're important for basic research in IVF, um, people would also like to study them because, for instance, we know COVID seems to affect embryos because we know pregnancy outcomes in women who've been infected by COVID can be compromised. So people would like to have a model embryo system to study COVID infections. So, you know, there are already people clamouring to use Jose Polo's cell system to be able to study the effects of COVID in early pregnancy, but that sort of research is halted at the moment. We'll be back in a moment. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. 
I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest, Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Elizabeth, a team of scientists in Australia have been working, developing blastoids, which are human embryos that were made out of skin cells originally, but they've had to abandon their research. Can you tell me about why that is? So one of the restrictions that was put in place by the the legislation uh, relates to the culturing of embryos, and this is where we get to the 14-day rule. So a committee based in in the UK in 1984 had designated this 14-day rule, which says that if you're culturing embryos for various reasons, for research, uh, that you should obey this 14-day rule. So this rule that says that you can't culture an embryo for more than 14 days, where does it come from? This was sort of in the aftermath of the early days of IVF research. So all of these things were breakthrough, exciting, but also came with a lot of criticism from those groups who, who really felt that this wasn't shouldn't be the way you would do things. When people were just starting to be able to culture human embryos and people started to be alarmed, well, you're growing embryo, human embryos in the culture dish, where could this lead? Most of us think of the sci-fi trope ahead of, you know, anything else, or the, the reality of, of what's going on. But people were alarmed, so this British committee had to put a limit on it. And simple. I mean, everybody can count to 14 because by that time we decided that this was a matter not just for um, medical guidelines but for legislation. And the law, above all things, needs certainty. But arguably, this it was a philosophical limit and it was fairly arbitrary. And so I think now we've reached another point. The technology has is now butting up against this 14 day rule and saying, well, let's examine this again in terms of what are the benefits we might gain by allowing people now, because they can, to culture embryos to 14 days and possibly beyond. So what could we gain from doing that? Mm. But are there risks to removing this 14-day rule? You spoke about it more in the kind of science fiction terms and, and the arguments that we might have heard back in the 80s when it was put in place. But are there real ethical concerns that need to be taken into account now? Yeah, it, it's hard to calibrate ethical concern. But I think uh, the discussion amongst ethicists these days is everyone has a seat at the table. Let's hear what your ethical concerns are. And, and they will all be different. They will be different from a Roman Catholic than they are for somebody sitting in a wheelchair or somebody whose child has a terminal disease. I think my personal opinion on this is the value of the consultative process, that on a case-by-case basis we need to look at what a researcher is proposing and applying for a licence for a particular period of time, for a particular type of experiment, clearly articulating what it is he or she is trying to achieve, why it can only be achieved by doing this research and not other types of research. We can't have 
hard and fast rules about these things. Technology evolves, but our ethics has to evolve. And I think for me, that realisation was a bit of an epiphany. It may sound ridiculous, but uh, in writing this article, it was a bit of an epiphany for me that even though for a lot of my career as a science writer, I had thought, oh, no, no, we have lines in the sand here. We will never do uh, genetic engineering of human embryos. We will never make human-animal uh, embryos. But I realised these were ethical positions that were adopted at a particular time, and ethics does evolve. I mean, we evolve our understanding of human ethics, and it is the same in science and technology. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the potential that um, this research could have in an age of COVID-19. And I just wanted to ask you about the pandemic more broadly, because obviously we've just seen the scientific community pull together. There's multiple vaccines now available for COVID-19, but I think it's also thrown into relief the public's trust in scientists. I think that, you know, it's really shown us that while there is this huge capability, um, there is also some level of distrust among certain parts of the community who see this being developed so quickly and start to get nervous about that. And so I just wonder, as you've been watching that unfold, what your thoughts are on communities' abilities to trust scientists and, and, you know, especially in this moment in time. I actually think this has been a great moment for public trust in science. So prior to this, the fastest vaccine we ever had was a four-year one for mumps. And, um, these vaccines were in trial 11 months from the beginning. The reason was, is the front end, the technology. We didn't have to go through the same techniques that we've normally had to go through for, for developing vaccines, you know, growing them in chicken eggs and so on and so forth. We've had this revolutionary new technique uh, that involves messenger RNA. So, this is a very dramatic illustration of how, because we've allowed science to give us all these amazing tools, we've had a vaccine in 11 months instead of years. And we've lost 8 million people. How many people would we lose if it was going to take four years to get a vaccine? So I think it does show us that things that sound like you know, very far-fetched or sci-fi, like, ooh, why would I want to allow human monkey research to go on, creating these hybrid human monkey embryos? Why would I allow such a thing to happen? Yuck! You know, maybe this will make us take pause and see that by allowing a considered uh, advance in technology, we have a suite of tools and wow, we've been able to call on them to get a vaccine in 11 months. Most research is aimed at benefiting the human condition, not creating sci-fi scripts. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. 
This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Also in the news today, Sydney's COVID-19 cluster has grown to nine after two more cases were reported on Sunday. Masks have been made mandatory indoors in seven local government areas, as well as on all public transport. And the Victorian government has announced that clinical trials of Australia's first locally produced mRNA vaccine will begin in October. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.